Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. And what is even more characteristic of Peter is the close connection which the apostle establishes between faith and hope. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today. We're listening to a sermon by Gerhardus Foss. It was preached in the early 20th century in New England. Troy, how's it going? Going well, Joel. We are just going through the new year, having a good time. New year, I guess. It's already a month and a half into it. If you're listening to this, hey. you know, as this episode is coming out. Uh-huh. Uh, but things are going well, and we have some exciting summer plans of being able to go back to the States that we've been able to confirm. And so we have just a lot going on, and we're praying that all goes well. But things are good. How about you, Joel? I'm doing great. I'm still waking up. This is early for me. So, I mean, again, Troy is in Indonesia, and I'm in Kansas City. And so my morning is his late night. And yep. uh and this is how we really, this is how we record these sessions. Some mornings I'm more awake than others. I'm I'm waking up, but I'm excited to talk about Gerhardus Voss. How can he not be? But first of all, let us read. A little five star review just came through whenever we try to get we have yeah. lots of interactions and lots of emails that have been coming in, but we always try to make sure to remember to read the five star reviews. Granted, we should probably also remember to read uh, the all the other things that come in as well, but we're remembering this one. Five star review. This podcast brings back old sermons from heroes of the faith from many, many years ago. It reminds me that God, the God I serve is the same yesterday and today, and the truths he teaches are timeless. I'm so grateful for those, these sermons and the biographies of these pastors from the past. I would make one small request and that's to hear more John Wesley. Great show. Mm -hmm. Thanks guys for all you do. And this came from, I believe the guy's name was Brian with a yo, which I thought was an interesting username. I know some yo's. Thank you, Brian with a yo. So I guess it's not to confuse him with Byron or something like that, right? This guy is not, not over there with them. So thank you, Brian with a yo. Uh, and if you have not left us a five-star review or not left us a rating or something somewhere, it is very appreciated, and it does help us out uh, a whole lot. So we thank you for that. Yeah, Wesley fan. But today we're talking about uh, Gerhardus Voss, which was a name I was unfamiliar with prior to uh, this episode. This man was born in 1862 to a German family, but they didn't live in Germany. They lived in the Netherlands. He and his siblings were highly educated, and his younger brother would become a professor at job at John Hopkins University. Uh, he himself would also become a professor. So a lot of smart people in the family, it would seem. His dad was a pastor, but uh, it kind of seems like he was maybe struggling with it. He had six different churches across a 23-year span, so he seemed to be hopping around I would call that quite a bit. I know that that might be more normal for some pastors, but I don't think that's a great way to pastor. I, I think most pastors don't don't quite go from six churches to twenty three years. I think I don't know. I think I've heard, for the ideal pastor. I have heard churches six. like, or I've heard pastors kind of like even brag about how like they have like a three year bank of sermons that they'll just cycle out in different churches. And, really? and well, I mean, again, that it sounds. <laughs> awful i think that's a, a terrible way to pastor a church but there are people that like this they'll just find a different church to to go to after that 
That's really interesting. I had never heard of people saying stuff like that. Well, I guess this guy might be in that boat. I don't think so. I think he had more commitment. I think he just had issues at each church. Voss himself was educated in Holland, and uh, then his father, when he was around the age of 19, took the whole family over to America for uh, his father to pastor at a church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. His father had the opportunity to go the opportunity to go to America a few years prior to this, uh, but he had rejected it. But at this time, when he did take the family to America, this was a time where Germany was gearing up for war with, with countries around Europe. Nationalism was growing, and uh, it seemed like the, the future of Europe was a bit unstable, and uh, that seems to maybe have been the, the provoking factor for Foss's father to get uh, him and the family out of there and over to America. Which, if you know during this time period, he was off the mark a little bit, but Germany does not, does eventually go to war, and it does end up being a pretty big deal. So in some ways, maybe he was reading the tea leaves and saw it coming a little earlier. Voss did really well in school and was seen as an up-and-comer. He had command of English, Dutch, and German. At the time, the Theological School of Grand Rapids, which is now called Calvin Theological Seminary, saw Voss as kind of an opportunity. You know, we don't see it this way today, but during the time, many Dutch and Germans were migrating to America. And as they moved, they had to balance their old cultures with their new ones. And seminaries and universities were trying to reach these people, uh, and these people wanted to change, but they also didn't. They liked the way they did things in the Netherlands or did things in Germany, but they also realized they couldn't carry all those things over to America, but they also didn't want to lose who they were. Voss, being from the old world, being a part of Germany and uh, the Netherlands, but able to teach in English, seemed a great opportunity to reach these students that the schools had flooding in. After two years, Voss was sent to uh, Princeton Theological Seminary to be taught by the great men there. Princeton is not the same as it is today. If you're picturing Princeton today, it's very different back then. Back then, it was a theological stronghold. Uh, we've covered some of the men that were at Princeton at the time. We've covered sermons by B.B. Warfield, J. Gresham Machen, Henry Van Dyke. Well, Voss actually taught Machen, and he was personal friends with Warfield during this era. And when he went there, Voss requested that he could skip the first year at Princeton. He said, I'm already proficient. I don't need any help in this area. Uh, they allowed him to do it, and they were definitely right to do so. He did great with the years that he was there. And while taking some of the most difficult theological courses you know, ever offered in the world, on the side, he wrote a book on Hebrew scholarship that won an award at the same time. So with the reward money from this scholarship he got, he went back to Europe to continue his studies. And this wasn't uncommon during this era. You know, Europe still had the best schools. And so B.B. Uh, Warfield also has a similar journey in his uh, educational career where he goes back to Europe to continue the, the academic betterment of himself. He went back to Berlin, uh, but he actually found it kind of stressful to be in Berlin. Berlin is a much bigger city than what he was used to. He found it hard to live in. So he would end up moving over to France to a university there where he would end up mastering French. Unfortunately, the university he went to in France didn't have the best theologically sound professors. One professor in particular, Professor Holtzman, uh, basically argued that Paul was a radical who got Jesus's teachings wrong. And uh, these professors pursued philosophy and were, and were deeply critical of the Bible. So it's kind of ironic that the, the place he was supposed to go to to get better education, you know, the best education over in Europe, actually ended up being 
one one of the more dangerous places to get a, a biblical education. Abraham Kuyper, another big name in the theological world, had set up a college for conservatives to fight back against encroaching liberalism at the time. The idea that the Bible wasn't inerrant, the idea that we the writings we have don't come from the actual apostles and things like that were very prevalent at the time. And Kuyper was setting up a school to fight back at that, and he needed an Old Testament professor, and he offered it to Voss. He said, Voss, is a great opportunity for you. It'd be really good for my school, and you could stay in Europe. You could stay with these academics, and you wouldn't. You could kind of return home. You know, he grew up in this part of the world. But at the time, Voss's personal friend, uh, Herman Bavink, also tried to convince him to stay. And I had his book in seminary. It's very, very large. Well, just one of his books, multiple volumes there. But a very big book, and this Bavink guy, also a big player, would play a big part in the theology that was to come and some of the movements going on. All these people are saying, hey, we want Shavas. But Voss passed, saying his family wanted him back in America and that he kind of saw himself as going to go back and be with the community of the Dutch that were immigrating over and kind of help shape the culture of what was going on at that time. And during this time, he moves back. He's got his, you know, his PhD. He's ready to go. And he serves for a couple of years at the school when a huge theological debate erupts. And we're talking end up being so big, this big debate that he got in with different scholars that it it got into the Grand Rapids newspaper, which is kind of funny to me. I try to imagine like your favorite news source today having, uh, uh, you know, being like theologians disagree on infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism, which is literally what the debate was. And just trying to imagine that on like the front page of a big newspaper that you check, a big website that you check for news or something like that. Just you can't imagine that happening. And yet that's what happened here, it was such a big deal. And Voss was at the center of it, but he really didn't like it. He wrote letters to Warfield, and he wrote letters to Kuiper, people he'd be kind of meeting off and on. And he just was like, hey, what, you know, what's the best advice here? Do I got this wrong? Let me know. Uh, and he said kind of personally on his own, he said, this is a, there is very little theological development happening in our little church. A lack of historical sense and historical denial can lead to dangerous things. Then he adds, lately I have more and more come to the conclusion that in the long run, I do not want to stay in my present position. So all this kind of fighting, trying to get the people that were immigrating to America to kind of embrace new ideas, grow a little bit, kind of think through things, seemed to be really causing him to struggle. And getting these this new people who were coming from a different culture to mesh in the new culture seemed to be wearing him out. And he wasn't really enjoying it very much. At the time, they were just getting into massive weeds about ideologies and drama and theology. And it was just kind of tiring him out. So eventually, even though that was kind of one of the reasons he went back to America, he left this community uh, and instead went to Princeton Theological Seminary. They had been actually trying to woo him for years, and they said, hey, look, we need you. You're a great thinker. You're very smart, and we're fighting theological liberalism. We're fighting rationalism. People are giving up their faith because they think it's not dumb. We need smart people like you to help us out with this. And there he became a pioneer of what is called biblical theology. And I kind of looked it up to figure it out, and this is a quote I found on what biblical theology, a good way to describe it is, God is the object of theology only insofar as he was supernaturally revealed himself in scripture. Biblical theology seeks to examine how God has revealed himself in scripture as parts and product of a divine work, applying no other method of grouping and arranging the parts and products than was given in scripture itself. And many of us, I think, would agree with this today. We'd say, yeah, we don't discover God somewhere else. We go to scripture to find out who God is and to learn about his person, to learn about his characteristics like immutability or simplicity or all these different attributes of God that we know, holiness, love. We get them from scripture. But back then, it was very common to go to philosophy, to go to Plato, to go to Socrates, to go to these other sources and learn about God 
with this other these other frameworks or even just going to a theological system first and Gerhardus is saying no 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 stick it all to scripture we don't we don't take the ideas from other places and stick it in scripture it scripture is what tells us about god and we don't add or take away from that i think a lot of us today would agree with this and i think a lot of us today kind of take for granted that this is how we're supposed to approach god but at the time when he was going up against this giant chorus of people who were theological liberals that was that was considered a really radical idea. So it was during all of this uh, when Gearhardus was at Princeton and he met his wife, Catherine. After getting married, they'd have four kids. Uh, one of them grew up to be a professor. One of them grew up to be a pastor. His daughter would end up becoming a children's book author. And I think this is probably partly due to her mother, Catherine, uh, who kind of kind of got the children's book market jump started when it comes to like Christian theological children's books, and this is because she was she was looking for a good book to teach her kids one day, and realized that you know that there wasn't really any good options out there, and so um, Catherine spent years developing what uh, we would end up calling. The children's story bible which had these these pictures and illustrations and and such you may have come across it in your childhood at some point i don't know but um it was a, a big success and would resonate with a lot of kids it's still used around the world to teach the bible to, to children voss uh, would eventually retire there's a lot to good to say about voss he does have a little bit of controversy around his his family, how he, there, like, there's this story of him uh, traveling to Seattle where he took a train and he left his wife and kids to get there by car, and people didn't like that about him. <laughs> I, I can understand, Joel. How would how would your wife respond if you're sure. like, hey, we're both, we sure. got to go to Chicago. Uh, I'm gonna grab this plane flight. When I'll you see look you there at it by car, like that with a bird's eye view, <laughs> objectively, it does seem like the not ideal way to handle that situation. But I'm not there in issues. I don't I don't know what was going on that week in his house. I guess is what I'm saying. I don't I don't know. I, I don't I don't. I'm not trying to defend him and or uh, condone him either way. But when he retires, he retired in a small town in Pennsylvania. Uh, and really just enjoyed nature, getting outdoors. He got into writing poetry. Uh, you can tell he just really liked taking a break from all the academics and lectures and just liked uh, loafing around and, and uh, being one with nature. While at Princeton, he'd love time outside. He'd go on daily walks with Warfield, uh, the B.B. Warfield. Now, in his retirement, he enjoyed a countryside home far away from the city, just kind of living that life. This town was so small, it only had one church, a small Methodist church. And that is where he would go on Sunday, and that's where he'd walk with the kids to town. They'd attend church, and they'd return. It's kind of funny because this guy is like a pillar of um, the Reformed community. He was in a very important part of developing a bunch of different ideology. And then he spends, you know, in philosophy, and then in his last few years on life, he's just kind of attending this really small Methodist church, which would in a lot of ways be the opposite of what he believed. But yeah, I kind of appreciate that he... He still saw, hey, you got to go to church. I'm not so big. I'm not so, you know, just because I wrote a bunch of books and I was a professor for 40 years, I'm not so big that I get to skip church either. Even if I disagree with some of the stuff this church teaches, I'm going to be there. I just thought that was kind of a cool, very humble sign for this guy that to the end, he he recognized what was important. Boss did not all end up being as famous or popular as many of the others in his circle. 
Although his books were a powerful defense of Christianity, his overly, I think, academic personality may have caused him some issues. Although, as you hear throughout the story, many people liked him and were wooing him to their schools. When he died, only a handful of people came to his burial and none from the seminary he had worked at. And I couldn't tell if that was just like a personality thing, but I really think what it was was more of just a Princeton was heading in a theological, like a theologically, a very different progressive direction. And the idea was kind of like, Voss, we're, we're leaving you behind. You're a way of doing things. He's, he's one of the last of that era to die off. Uh, the B.B. Warfields and J. Gresham Machins, his own student, had already passed on. I think it was just their way of saying, we don't remember you anymore. And in a lot of ways, Gearhardus Voss isn't remembered. But he taught at Princeton for 39 years, almost 40 years. He raised up many future leaders of that church, and he left his imprint on a future generation of Christian leaders. And I do not think that many of them forgot him. familiar with the characterization of Peter as the Apostle of Hope. The well-known distinction runs, Paul the Apostle of Faith, John the Apostle of Love, Peter the Apostle of Hope. Of course, generalizing definitions like this can be somewhat misleading. They would be wrong if they were to give us the impression that in Paul, hope was not particularly prominent. Or for John, faith was not especially important. A single glance at the writings of these two apostles would convince us of the opposite. These three are necessary ingredients of all Christian life. The only question can be, which of the three is the most characteristic in each? These Christian virtues are not something arbitrary. They correspond closely to the fundamental dispositions and activities in the natural constitution of man. What a man's attitude is by nature, then that is what he will usually be in the state of grace. Evidently, Peter's was a temperament of hope. We can observe this in all that is recorded of him in the Gospels and Acts, and so in his regenerate Christian life. He also he retains this attribute, that side of redemption which has to do with hope most deeply impressed on his heart and most strongly appealed to him. And therefore he was used by the Spirit as the Apostle to interpret for us the nature and influence of Christian hope. The whole epistle bears witness to the prominence of this factor in the writer's mind. It is of course highly significant that it emerges here at the very beginning before any other thing is mentioned, and that it is immediately introduced in such a way as to make us feel that the essence of what Christians are consists in this, that they have hope. They are begotten again for that. When they were made new creatures, it was that they might have a new hope. But in the sequel, also, the writer returns to it. In the 13th verse of this chapter, he exhorts the readers as follows, When girding up the loins of your mind, be sober and set your hope perfectly on the grace that is to be brought for you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the third chapter, the 15th verse, he adds that the reader should always be ready to give an answer to every man that asks them 
a reasoning concerning the hope that is in them, and not only of the religious life of his readers, but of religious life in general, especially the religious life of the Old Covenant. He makes hope the keynote of the holy women of old that he holds up as examples to the Christian women of his own time. He has nothing greater to say than this, that they hoped in God. And what is even more characteristic of Peter is the close connection which the apostle establishes between faith and hope. In the 17th verse of this chapter, he encourages the readers to pass the time of their sojourning in fear, fear in view of the holiness of God, who as Father, without respect to persons, judges according to each man's work. But fear is not the whole of Christian consciousness. There is another side to it, and that is hope. The God who is judge is also the one who has given Christ as a Savior. The Christians are believers through Christ in a God who has raised him from the dead and gave him glory for the express purpose that their faith might also hope in God. For it seems we must render the close of the 21st verse rather than that your faith and hope might be in God. In so closely connecting faith and hope, our epistle bears a certain similarity to the epistle to the Hebrews, with which it also possesses some other interesting points of contact. In Hebrews, you will remember, faith is in one place defined as the substance of things hoped for. Let us for a few moments consider this idea of the Christian hope and the significance the apostle ascribes to it for the practice of religion. In the first place, we notice that the hope of which the text speaks is not a general sort of hopefulness, the expectation of future blessedness in an indefinite sense. It is true that the Christian is a man of hope so long as his plans for the future seem bright and cheerful. But what Peter means is something different from this, something far more specific. The hope he refers to is the hope of the future kingdom of God, the final state of blessedness, as we would call it. This is stated in so many words. For the apostle, after having first said that we were begotten again for a living hope, goes on to substitute for the conception of hope that of the inheritance reserved in heaven for us. He adds still further that while this is reserved for us, we are also guarded for it as for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The Christian is a man, according to Peter, who lives with his heavenly destiny ever in full view. His outlook is not bound by the present life and the present world. He sees that which is and that which is to come in their true proportions and in their proper perspective. The center of gravity of his consciousness lies not in the present, but in the future. Hope in, not possession of, is that which gives tone and color to his life. This is the frame of mind of the heir 
who knows he is entitled to large treasures upon which he will enter at some point of time. Treasures which will first enable him to become a man and develop his powers to their full capacity, and every one of whose thoughts therefore projects itself into the period when he will come of age and enjoy the fruition of his hope. It is characteristic of youth to live in the future because youth knows instinctively that the true realities, the great possibilities of life, lie ahead of them. What they sense as now is merely temporary and preparatory. That growing is for becoming. Yet even more emphatically, this is true of that youthful stage of Christian life which believers spend here on earth. For that which young people expect in the future is indefinite and uncertain. They know what they have is not yet the true life. But what the true life, when it comes, will bring, if it comes at all, they cannot tell you. But the Christian's hope is positive. His youth is like that of the heir before he comes of age to enjoy his inheritance, but still knows precisely what awaits him. No, it's more than this. The Christian has the assurance which no heir in the temporary things can ever have. He knows with absolute certainty that not merely will the inheritance be kept for him, but that he will be kept for it. Here then is something that possesses all the requirements necessary to make hope a safe and normal life principle. The Christian can hope perfectly. He is the only one that can hope perfectly for that which is to be brought for him. For him to be looking to anything else would be an anomaly, sickliness, decadence. To have it set on that hope is life and health and strength. The air of the world to come is the atmosphere which he delights to breathe and outside of which he feels depressed and oppressed. Without a doubt, the early Christians, as we observe them in the New Testament and even later, had more of this youthful spirit of the faith than you and I and the Christians of the present day can boast of. Christianity, in a certain sense, has grown old in us. We do not, as much as we ought to, have our hearts set on eternity. What is the reason? It's easy to say the Christians of the apostolic age expected the speedy return of Christ, which would soon make an end of the present world, and that for this reason, they had a great advantage over us. To some extent, this may be true, although to a far larger extent, I believe that a precisely opposite connection between these two facts might be affirmed. I venture to say that the apostolic church was so much interested in the return of the Lord and the time of his coming because spiritually it was prepared for making this a question of supreme concern. In other words, because it was a church full of hope, it pondered with eager interest 
the problem of the how and the when its hope wills to be realized. There is a very easy way of testing this. To us, to every believer individually, death and through death, the eternal world is just as near as the second advent could have appeared to the Christians of the time of Peter and Paul. Does the absolute certainty that we are so near to it have the same influence upon us as their belief had upon them? And if not, does not the difference plainly arise from this, that the forces of eternal life were so strong in them as to keep their hope ever fresh and green, whereas in our case, they are frequently so weak as to make our hope a little more than a profession, a name? Where are the few nowadays, we are asking ourselves this question too, who carry with them the consciousness of belonging to another world? Who realizes we are heirs to an unbounded future? Where are the few who are conscious to the same extent? I won't say as Peter and Paul were, but as the plain average believer in those times was. They realized it back then, and the average Christian lived it. For the whole New Testament, wherever we open it, there blows upon us, as it were, a breeze fresh from the oceans of heaven. And what a pity that we succeed so little in creating and reproducing this atmosphere around us. What a dignity it lends to the Christian life to have such hope, even if you had it theoretically. If you have ever moved for a time in circles where the Christian faith had ceased to exist, where the belief in immortality had practically vanished, where people lived consciously and professedly for this world only and not even attempting any longer to break down the bars that shut them in, then you will have felt how sadly life has degraded, how pitifully brought down to the animal stage, even though it had all the advantages of worldly refinement and culture, all of life collapses simply because this element of hope has been taken out of it. Modern paganism in this respect is not better than its previous forms. It is worse than ancient paganism being more self-conscious. And of ancient paganism, Paul already summed up the whole sad story in the double statement that it was without hope and without God in the world, an exile from what is the noblest birthright of humanity. Now, if this is so, how imperative in view of it becomes the duty of every true believer in the present age to cultivate the grace of hope, to make himself remember, to make others feel, not so much by direct affirmation, but rather by the tone of life that the future belongs to us and that we belong to the future, that we are children of the world to come, and that even now 
We allow this world to mold and rule and transform us in our thoughts and desires and feelings. If we could only learn again, brothers, what Peter calls to hope perfectly, what a witness of the reality of the Christian religion, what a powerfully attractive influence there might proceed from this one manifestation of our spiritual life. People not having such hope would feel the difference between themselves and us and regret not having it might in many instances offer the first inducement to regain an interest in it and inquire about it. The necessary consequence of this life of the Christian in hope is that he learns to consider the present earthly life a journey, a pilgrimage, something that is necessary for the sake of what comes after, but which does not have any independent value or attraction in itself. This also is a thought which pervades and colors the entire epistle. Peter in his very opening words, addresses the readers as sojourners of the dispersion, two terms which strikingly express that they were away from home, scattered in a strange world, a colony of heaven, as truly as the scattered Jews were a diaspora with reference to the Holy Land and Jerusalem. He tells them to gird up the loins of their minds as fits a traveler journeying through. And again, he says, pass the time of your sojourning in fear. Once more, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, without a certain detachment from this world. Otherworldliness is not possible. Hope cannot flourish where the heart is in the present life. Two things, however, must be remembered here in order not to misunderstand this teaching. In the first place, this detachment from the world is not and ought not to be an external matter, but an internal attitude. The question is not whether one will deny himself all earthly, temporal possessions. He might do that, and yet, in his heart, be far from a pilgrim, a sojourner. And, on the other hand, he might not do this, and yet inwardly obey the command of the apostle, because he had succeeded in disengaging his heart. In the second place, such an inward attitude towards the world cannot be assumed and maintained artificially by merely compelling ourselves not to love the present life. If this is to be a natural, healthy state of mind, it must be the result of a greater, supreme interest in the life to come. The negative must be the effect of the positive. The love of heaven must drive out the inordinate love of what is earthly. Here the author entirely directs his command to the positive side. 
He does not urge the readers to make themselves strangers on earth or even consider themselves so, but simply takes this for granted as a fact which none of them can be unaware of. All he does is to point out how their situation in the world bears out the truth of their not being in it. He tells them repeatedly that their sufferings are due to this. For you will observe the suffering of which the epistle speaks so much it was not a suffering in general, but suffering of a specific kind and brought upon believers by the hate of the world, where also it was prefigured by the sufferings of Christ. And the world makes the Christians suffer because it instinctively recognizes the latter belongs to a different, to an opposite order of things in itself. The malice of the world springs from reservations that the believer should refuse to identify himself with the world. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials among you. The same sufferings are accomplished in your brothers, which are in the world. For example, because they are in the world, they think it strange that you do not run with them into the same excess. If we are true believers, brothers, though we ourselves should sometimes forget, the world will not fail to remind us of the difference between it and us. And on the other hand, if we at any time feel perfectly at home in the world, if our consciousness of its necessary antagonism to us is entirely in abeyance, then there is an abundant reason for us to examine ourselves, and the probability is that we have been backward in cultivating our hope upon God and the world to come. In the third place, we observe that this hope of the believer is something into which he has come by being born again. Its origin is ascribed to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, begot us again for a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God took mercy upon us because he saw us leading a life without hope, and therefore, by a new birth, he radically changed our world for us as to make it a world of hope. The peculiar way in which the apostle expresses this fact ought to be carefully noted. He might have said, God gave us a new hope, or God brought us into a new hope. But what he says is, God begot us again for a living hope. Without a doubt, this representation is chosen in order to emphasize the comprehensiveness and persuasiveness of the hope which the Christian obtains. It means a change as great as the crisis of birth, a transition from not being to living. When the hope of the gospel breaks upon our vision, the change is not partial. It does not affect our life in merely one or the other of its aspects. It revolutionizes our whole life at every point. What this means is a total regeneration of our consciousness, 
a regeneration of our way of thinking, a reversal of our outlook upon things in their entirety. The term to be begotten again or to be born again does not always have the same meaning in Scripture. Sometimes it stands for that fundamental act by which God implants a new spiritual life in us, deep beneath our consciousness and beneath all our experience, in the center of our nature. In that case, regeneration is confined, as it were, to a single point, and from this point, the implanted life expands and unfolds itself. But there is also in the New Testament a wider conception of regeneration according to which it describes the change in us as it presents itself to our own conscious experience. And therefore, the change is not of a single point within us, but the change as reflected in the entire compass of our consciousness. It is the coming of the new life as a complex, rich world of new relations and new realities and new reactions. It, in this sense, Paul says that when anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation, not merely a new creature, but a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away. All around him has become new. When a man becomes conscious of his being in Christ, there takes place such a transformation of his spiritual environment for him that it may be fitly compared to the great world change that will take place before our eyes when the new heavens and new earth appear at the end of time. These two regenerations resemble each other in their pervasive, comprehensive character. Now, in this sense also, I take it, Peter affirms that believers have been begotten again for a living hope. In all probability, the representation, while applicable to all believers, was influenced to some extent by the apostle's memory of his own experience. There had been a moment in his previous life when all at once, in the twinkling of an eye, as it were, he had been so translated from a world of despair into a world of hope. It was when the fact of the resurrection of Christ flashed upon him, under the twofold bitterness of his denial of the Lord and the tragedy of the cross, utter darkness had settled down upon his soul. Everything he expected from the future in connection with Jesus had been completely blotted out. Perhaps he had even been in danger of losing the old hope, which as a pious Israelite he cherished before he knew the Lord. And then suddenly the whole aspect of things had been changed. The risen Christ appeared to him and by his appearance brought about the resurrection of everything that had gone down with him into the grave. No, there was far more here for Peter than a mere resurrection of what he had hoped for before. It was the birth of something new, 
that now for the first time disclosed itself to his perception. His hope was not given back to him in its old form. It was regenerated in the act of restoration. Previously, it had been dim, undefined, subject to fluctuations, sometimes eager and enthusiastic, sometimes cast down and languishing. In many respects, earthly and carnal, very incompletely spiritualized, and apart from all these defects, a bare hope which could only sustain itself by projection into the future, but lacked that life-giving support and nourishment in a present substantial reality, without which no religious hope can permanently subsist. Through the resurrection of Christ, all these faults were corrected. All things missing are found. For Peter looked upon the risen Christ as the beginning, the first fruits of that new world of God in which the believer's hope is anchored. Jesus did not rise as he had been before, but transformed, glorified, eternalized, the possessor and author of a transcendent heavenly life at one and at the same time the revealer, the sample, the pledge of the future realization of the true kingdom of God. No prolonged course of training could have been more effective for purifying and spiritualizing the apostles' hope than this single instantaneous experience, this bursting upon him of a new form of eternal life, concrete and yet all comprehensive in its prophetic significance. Well might the apostles say that he himself had been begotten again for a new hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And of course, what was true of him was even more emphatically true of the readers of his epistle, who, if they were believers from the Gentiles, previously to their conversion, had lived entirely without hope and without God in the world. This substantial renewal, which the consciousness of man undergoes when he is brought in contact with the resurrection life of Christ, is still more clearly expressed in the other statement of our text. For you will observe that the apostle describes the goal of this new begetting in two ways. First, he says, for a living hope, and then he says, for an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away. What he means is evidently nothing else than through the resurrection of Christ. His hope has been made to terminate directly upon the heavenly inheritance in all it encompasses. It was a birth into a state of consciousness that knew itself infinitely rich in heavenly places in Christ. It was a birth in which all the thoughts and the aspirations have for their fixed anchor the sense of nobility being heir to untold treasures. What matters is that the inheritance is not yet received so far as our legal title to it is concerned 
and our ideal possession of it. We have been born for it through the resurrection of Christ. The three adjectives, incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, describe the spiritual heavenly character of the inheritance. They describe that aspect of it in virtue of which hope of the believer can justly be called a newborn hope, distinct not only as a new fact, but distinct by its new qualities. They describe that in which the inheritance which Peter expected after the resurrection differed from that which he expected before. These adjectives simply unfold what is already given in the statement that the inheritance is reserved, or rather preserved, kept secure in heaven, because by its nature it belongs to the heavenly spiritual world. It is exempt from corruption. The forces of decay that rule in this world of death cannot attack it. It is undefiled. The principle of moral evil, the power of sin, cannot invade it. It does not fade away. Even the lapse of time in which a normal world destroys the beauty and freshness of things cannot dim its glory, for it is constituted under the laws of eternity and not of time. By no means, however, does it follow from this that the existing under such laws and so securely protected from the corruption and defilement and decay of the world. It is also debarred from exerting its power in this world and acting upon us while we form yet part of this lower order of things. For the apostle, as you will observe, describes the hope to which the Christian has been born again as a living hope, this is but another way of saying that the inheritance for which he has been born again is a living inheritance, an inheritance that moves and sways, that strengthens and inspires us, and that not merely subjectively through our knowledge of it, but objectively through the spiritual power that proceeds from it. The word living is used in two other passages of our epistle. It is said that the word of God, that it lives and abides forever. And Christ is called the living stone for whom coming believers themselves also as living stones are built up as a spiritual house. From this, we can infer what is meant by a living hope just as living stones are different from ordinary stones and that they do not wait passively until somebody comes and puts them into a building, but lend themselves in free spiritual activity for the purpose of edification. So a living hope is a hope which is not dead material in the mind of the believer, but an active force in his life. It is something that makes its influence felt and carries him along, that sustains and inspires him. The hope of the Christian can do this 
because it relates to something that is not purely future, but already exists in the present because it is a hope in an inheritance, the most real of all realities. The inheritance may be invisible, but this does not detract in the least from his power to observe in our life. The very fact of its being invisible vouches for its efficacy because this invisibility means that it forms part of the spiritual world, and the spiritual world is infinitely more real and infinitely more powerful than the things which our eyes can see. Here the Christian, while not having seen it, loves it and rejoices in it greatly with joy unspeakable and full of glory. He models himself according to it. He purifies his soul in harmony with the purity that intrinsically belongs to that world. He abstains from fleshly lust because they war against the spiritual nature of the soul. And it is through the spiritual nature that he is related to this spiritual realm, which is the object of his hope. He is the sound mind, sober for prayer. In all these things, he conforms himself and responds to the claims which his heavenly destiny has upon him. He lives in the presence of the world to come and allows it to be the ruling factor in all he thinks and does. Finally, brothers, the living hope of which the apostle speaks has this which makes it special, that it possesses a personal center in Christ and God. All through the epistle, this is strikingly brought out. That which controls and attracts the believer in this hope is not a confused mass of expectation, not a medley of fantastic dreams. There is a unifying idea in it. It is, in the last analysis, the certainty that there is a state in store for us which will bring us face to face with God and Christ. The Christian is a sojourner here and must live in the future because he knows full well that under the present conditions, he can never attain that full possession of God and his Savior, for which in his best moments, his heart and flesh cry out. The veil of sense lies between. The barrier of sin lies between. Even though he lay hold of God as Moses did, seeing the invisible, there is something that lies beyond his reach that eludes his grasp. The believer knows, moreover, that as long as he cannot fully possess God, God cannot fully possess him, nor be completely glorified in him. This sentiment lies at the basis of all genuine, God-born Christian hope, the sentiment which enabled even the psalmist under the Old Covenant to transcend the darkness and mystery of death and to say, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. 
As for me, I will behold your face in the righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake with your likeness. I like the sermon. It's a little different. I think just in some ways, maybe because it's more recent. I don't know. It just feels a little different than some other sermons. But I just love this idea of you are living the promises that God has given for you are not just promises of a future hope, although they are, and we do have our hope in the future of what God is doing, uh, but also those are real promises that he makes. And when you are a child of God, you are living out those promises today. I think sometimes for me, it's very easy to think God is doing great things and I'll see them someday. And remembering that God is just as much my father right now as he will be 200 years from now when I'm in heaven. And just because I don't see him face to face, God is still just as much hearing my prayers and walking with me through life. That was very comforting. And just recognizing this idea that we need to not see these promises that he gives us as far off things that will someday be fulfilled, but recognizing that they are real for our lives right now because we are the children of God that he has you know, died. Christ has died on the cross for those sins. And so those things are as real to us when we believe as they will be a thousand years from now. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Stephen Dawkins. Thanks for Stephen for uh, helping narrate a sermon this week on Revived Thoughts. If you enjoyed this episode, we asked at the top of the show, you could leave us a rating or review, and we do hope that you will consider doing so. It always helps us out when you leave us a five star, especially on Apple Podcasts, but we'll take it anywhere. Shout out on Twitter, a little share on Instagram, wherever you like to be. It helps us no matter where it is, and it really does uh, help boost our numbers and helps other people find what we're doing here and helps the algorithms and those kinds of things to favor us better when they see our ratings are pretty good. Right now we have a 5.0 on Apple Podcasts, which is pretty cool. And we do uh, thank everyone who's rated us so far. And we hope that you will continue to do so. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. <music>